stories and you're listening to the one and only Chuck Berry and you're listening to Maybelline. The lyrics describe a man driving a V8 Ford chasing his unfaithful girlfriend in her Cadillac Coupe de Ville. It's an adaptation of the western swing song Ida Red as recorded by Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys in 1938. And by the way we love storytelling here in our American stories and the stories of legends in the music business. By the way, we don't have a preference, as you can tell. Jazz, Miles Davis, rock and roll. You're going to hear Tom Petty soon. We did Robert Plant. We got Chuck Berry here, and we've covered so many artists, and country included. There's no preference here. We just celebrate the greats and try and dig into their music and, of course, their lives. And on this day in history, Chuck Berry was born October 1926. He is an American guitarist, singer-songwriter, and is one of the pioneers of this thing called rock and roll, one of America's great exports. With songs such as Maybelline, Roll Over Beethoven, and Johnny B. Good, Barry refined and developed rhythm and blues into the major elements that made rock and roll distinctive, with lyrics focusing on teen life and music featuring guitar solos that were a major influence on rock and roll. He was born into a middle-class African-American family in St. Louis. Barry gave his first public performance at Sumner High School. While still a student, he was convicted of armed robbery and was sent to a reformatory where he was held from 1944 to 1947. After his release, Barry settled into married life and worked at an automobile assembly plant. By early 53, influenced by the guitar riffs and showmanship techniques of the blues musician T-Bone Walker, Barry began performing with the Johnny Johnson Trio. His big break came when he traveled to Chicago in May of 1955 and met Muddy Waters, who suggested he contact Leonard Chess of Chess Records. With Chess, he recorded Maybelline, Barry's adaptation of that country song, which sold over a million copies, reaching number one on Billboard magazine's Rhythm and Blues charts. From a 1986 documentary, Hell, Hell, Rock and Roll, that chronicles Barry's 60th birthday, we hear a candid discussion between Chuck Berry and legendary guitarist Robbie Robertson from the band. Looking over an old scrapbook, Berry looks back on one of his first jobs and how he hid his music from his father, who was a deacon in the local church. What is that, a library card? Library card, yeah. And uh, a check stub from National Tea Company, a check <laughs> Stubs, I'm in the money here. I'm making mm-hmm. $90 a week here at Fisher Body Auto. What were you doing there? Uh, sweeping the floor. That's all we could do. <laughs> they didn't care nothing about these songs there. <laughs> uh, no songs were, no. I was singing uh, for $20 Who is this, a night. Uh, is this musician union card here? Oh, I got who? that in 54 and uh, started learning. Uh, but who is this person's name on here? Well, that's my name, uh, sort of camouflaged, that N. Uh-huh, I Baron. see. Chuck Barron, because uh, 
I, I wasn't big, and then I didn't want to infiltrate. My dad was a deacon. Uh-huh. So you don't want the... Uh, he didn't the, want you playing this music uh, from the I devil. didn't want him to know I was <laughs> yeah. playing it, that's for sure. Here, Robertson asks Barry where he got the idea to focus on music that would appeal specifically to teenagers at the time. I mean, I don't know how old you were at this period. Well, I was 29 when Maybelline came out. So school days was maybe a you year and a half. You were 29 when Maybelline came up. Yeah, I had a house and a car and two children. What made you think to write songs about up in the morning and off to school? Because when I went out on the road, I found that over half of the audience was uh, teenagers, kids in school. So if you're whoever you're singing, you play what the people want, you know. <laughs> Sing about them and they'll listen to you. Uh, in nightclubs, I have nothing to sing but Wee Wee Hour. I had two, two records when I first night. Wee Wee Hours, and then I'd sing some Muddy Waters and whatever you, whatever the, uh, down the way where the lights are gay, you know, school kids don't know anything about Jamaica. Uh-huh. They know something about school days. Yep, sing what they know about, and an insight from Chuck. And by the way, we've all been to school. That helps, too, no matter how old you are. You've been to school. Here's Chuck Berry talking about his first musical inspiration when he was back in high school. He also describes his love of comedy and poetry and his introduction into this thing called show business. My first inspiration was Nat Cole in high school. Mm-hmm. You see, by nature, see, I'm a lover, you see. I see. But I never get a chance Chuck. to love. No, no, I went back in high school. No, I'm, I'm innocent, you see. And uh, no girlfriend, you know, because uh, I always had a gift to gab, and I, uh, I always did like com- comedy, you know, and poetry. Comedy is too silly for love. Poetry is too serious. So I was left out. Uh-huh. Until I got into uh, show business. <laughs> And I found that uh, you don't uh, go after your inspirations. They come to you, you know. I got to hear that laugh again. (laughs) 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 That is classic. Here, Chuck Berry talks about his influences for his guitar solos with, again, Robbie Robertson of the band. Then he shares some of his basic principles for what he considers a solid Rock performance. Carl Hogan mm-hmm. uh, was the inspiration for most of my solos. Uh, uh, Carol, Johnny B. Good, uh, Rollover Beethoven, and is he the first guy that you that played that? That played something like Yeah, that played something like that. He had it in the center. He had something like this in the center of a solo, and and I I opened my song with it. And uh, Robert Beethoven, after it hit, uh, later on, Johnny B. Good hit, later on, Carol hit with the same solo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little difference in the figure, oh, you yeah. know, but then uh, same principle. Start at the top tonic with 0 and 5, or 8 and 5, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then get away. Do your changes and move on out. Uh, what do you exploit your lyrics and uh, keep your rhymes and wind up with a break and out. And you get an applaud, do it again. <laughs> we got to keep that in mind for this show. Line up your rhymes and get out with applause and then do it again. Chuck Berry, born on this day in history. One more segment, the man, his music, his life. This is Our American Stories. 
stories and you're listening to the Beatles cover of the Chuck Berry song. By the way, the Beatles had well they'd been plugging away in nightclubs in Germany playing cover songs and this was one of them. And so they recorded it in one of their earliest sessions in EMI in 1963 and here's what John Lennon said. He said if you tried to give rock and roll another name, you might just call it Chuck Berry. This quote from Lennon summarizes the phenomenal influence Berry had on the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and much of the British invasion. Let's take a listen to Chuck Berry's version. It doesn't get better in terms of lyric writing. Sharp, smart, rhythmic. And no one had heard a sound like that before, folks. Easy to look back. Let's go back to the storytelling. And again, this is Our American Stories, the life of Chuck Berry. He was born on this day in history way back in 1926. Looking back at that old scrapbook with Robbie Robertson, Chuck Berry goes over a list that showed his pay in those early years and how it influenced him to stick with that music. Gleason's Bar, set August 15, 1955, Cleveland, Ohio, $800 a week behind $21 a night at the Cosmo over there. And just the week before... I was making $32 at the Frolic Ball, $14 at the Three Brothers, $60 with the whole band at the Green Dragon. The Capital Cocktail only paid $15, but Gleason's $800 a week. That's when you decided, I think this, this is for me, huh? This is the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Young Chuck Berry insisted on being the opening act at shows for some reason. That was a good opening act. <laughs> and it didn't matter to me, and then because everybody was arguing over, I'm going to close the show. I I'm going to close the show. But, but Chuck Berry, because Chuck Berry didn't know that the star closes a show until maybe two years into his career, when he began to look at the money that the stars got and why they close, then he wanted to close. You know, and still, really, it doesn't really it doesn't matter today whether I close or open the show because I'm going to try to rob everybody of the starship. You bet. When asked about his method to creating lyrics, Barry says he tries to tell a story with poetry. Trying to tell a story, Robbie. It came from actually poetry. Poetry portraits a scene or a story, and uh, that's where my uh, lyrics uh, would originate from. Some thought that uh, uh, from it came a story and then proceeded with uh, music or some riff that uh, reminded me of uh, some uh, situation that brought about a story. Here, Barry talks about trying to emulate musicians like Little Richard while being more articulate like Nat King Cole. I have stood on the stage in the Cosmopolitan 
And uh, thinking of how I could uh, produce something like Little Richard's Tutti Frutti, which was really sizzling at the time. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, the main thing about it here, like Little Richard, sometimes I couldn't understand what they were saying, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I went into writing uh, Maybelline, I, I had a... Uh, desire and an intention, you know, to speak the words uh, of a song real clear, because Nat Cole taught me that, you know. Nat Cole had a diction, uh -huh. I think, that was just superb, you know. Uh-huh. Pretend you're happy when you're blue. And you could hear every word, his S's, T's, P's, and G's. Mm -hmm. But uh, when you're singing like, uh, roll over Beethoven, roll over Beethoven, you got to speak distinct in order to get your message out. Especially with the number of words that you use. <laughs> yeah, you well, know? I mean, the words are flying boogie, by. Boogie is eight to the bar. So if you have a word, if you have two words with four syllables, you got to say them within a bar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, and it's so true, unlike Nat King Cole, where when you're singing traditional pop, you've got a lot of space. Chuck Berry was cramming lyrics into bars. So he had to go through fast, but listen to his records. Go back, listen to some of the songs. You won't miss a single syllable. His pronunciation and his enunciation is so succinct and so clear. Chuck uh, talks about his first gig in New York and how he realized that he could make a living as a performer. When I went to uh, the uh, Paramount, my first New York gig, I didn't know that you changed. You know, you do six, five, six shows mm -hmm. a day. I didn't know that you changed. And the one suit that we had was satin and had the impressions of seersucker. You know, seersucker, you, you mm -hmm. old enough to know what a seersucker yeah. And it was wrinkled, and, you know, and I found out that they had irons and, and uh, things to do your clothes up also, and people there to sew your clothes, all these new things, you know. And, and really, until I got to the Paramount, I didn't know that you got had a room to yourself, you know, like a dressing room. Mm -hmm. Well, this is almost like home. All you have to have is a car and your guitar, and you can make it in the world. Mm -hmm. You're just constantly playing gigs. You have to have one every night, you know, have somewhere to sleep. Robbie Robertson, again, the, play, the lead guitarist from the band, asks Chuck Berry about where he got his rhythm guitar sound. This, on so many of the songs that you played, this position on the guitar, which I'd studied very carefully as a child, just that the size of your hands and everything, but that ding, 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 where did that come from? Where was your first? You said that everything you ever did, you heard somebody else do first. Where did you hear that first? Um, that's, well, it was Boogie Woogie, number one. And uh, I would say it came from mimicking the figure on a piano of Boogie uh -huh. Woogie. Uh, one, five, and six. One, five, and six. One, right. five, six in rhythmic uh, progression. And you can do the same thing on the guitar. Much more easy, I found. Yeah. So that's a background yeah. for, uh, well, it's a constant background. You can sing to it. Yeah. And there you have it, not stealing from other guitarists, but stealing from keyboard licks, and then just translating to guitar. Chuck Berry eventually took a break from music and describes coming back to a scene that had been utterly changed by the Beatles. I was away for almost a couple of years, you know. I went away uh, making $1,200 a night 
When I came back, the Beatles had come to America, and my salary then was two thousand, right from uh, being away. Now, if this is this is American, you stay away somewhere, you come back, you get uh, more pay. Indeed, and Barry describes his comeback as not so much of a comeback, but a lack of his absence. I came out with Nadine and, and no particular place to go, and it went a little place. As time went on, I wrote maybe uh, something that was heard. I can't think of just now. But finally, in, in 70, which was six years later, here's Dingling, smash hit, recorded in England, you know. Okay, and I say, oh, he made a comeback, made a comeback. Well, frankly, other than my absence, it never left. Here, Chuck Berry says he never got into drugs and explains why. I was old enough to uh, lay off of smoking, and, of course, I never did get into drugs, you know, but... Um, you never did any drugs in your life? You know, I don't care who believes. No, 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 no. No, it doesn't believe me. No, I, I know, you know, but but you yourself have never done any drugs in your life. No, no, no. No, I wouldn't, and advise all others to... Uh, if they're on it, try and get off, because I don't think they can, you know, but try anyway. But uh, it's, uh, I've just seen too many of my friends go here, uh-huh. Joplin, Hendrix, you name yeah. it, Ed Presley, you know, some of the greats have yeah. gone down the train, and I'm feeling fine without it. He sure is. And last but not least, here is Chuck Berry talking about his investments. He was a shrewd businessman. His success with his song, My Ding-a-Ling, running his own business, and being known as the father of rock and roll. I'm heavy into real estate because that's the only place I see to spend money, invest money that is <laughs> lucratively and, uh, and not exploiting my wealth. But uh, it is something to, I don't have a, uh, someone to take care of it. And that takes quite a bit of your time to take mm-hmm. care of a business that you're running. So I have a, the investment company that I run real estate and then I have Chuck Berry Music that uh, uh, runs my music, you know. Now, back to Ding-A-Ling, uh, at this time, uh, make, Ding-A-Ling was a hit. I bought more uh, property, and I'm into about three different people now, a businessman, a musician, and you say a writer, uh, they say uh, father of rock and roll, and quite busy. Quite busy indeed. This day in history, Charles Chuck Berry, born October 18, 1926, in St. Louis, Missouri. Our American Stories loves music. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and go to This Day in History and just check it out. Lots and lots of stories about folks as disparate as Frank Sinatra and Dwayne Allman. This is Our American Stories, and we love sharing stories with you, particularly from our loyal listeners. But before we do, and we have a really good one, it's time for Shower Thoughts. Shower Thoughts. (laughs) It's a good thing the Dr. Seuss books come with pictures, because otherwise I'd have no clue what he was talking about. The most suspicious thing you can bring on an airplane is a parachute. 
Kim Jong-un must really look strange to the people of North Korea since he's the only overweight person in the entire country. Hurricanes are becoming so powerful and violent that they should be named after bad guys, not just random names pulled out of thin air. Hurricane Patricia doesn't sound nearly as scary as Hurricane Hitler. When I drive with my left hand, the lives of the people in my car are held by something I can't even write my name with. The question, where are you, has probably never been asked in sign language. The two main characters of the show VeggieTales are a tomato and a cucumber. Neither are technically vegetables. The tallest person on Earth has been the same height as every person on Earth at some point in his life. A birth control pill pack is like an advent calendar for a woman's period. I bet giraffes don't even know what farts smell like. If self-driving cars kick in fast enough, women in Saudi Arabia may never be able to drive. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. My car is eight years old and just hit 186,000 miles. So it took my car eight years to travel as far as light does in one second. Condoms are one of the most environmentally friendly things invented by man. A single one has the potential to eliminate the carbon emissions of an entire human over the course of their lifetime. What if our use of emojis gradually becomes so extensive that we actually circle back to writing in hieroglyphics? <laughs> what if hieroglyphics are ancient emojis used by the Egyptians? Warm beer and cold coffee are both the same temperature. When you want to make sure a piece of paper doesn't get folded, you put it in something called a folder. I wonder if cats think that we're cleaning our ice cream. The only time I've ever used my panic button on my car keychain is when I accidentally pressed it, causing me to panic. If you're over 30 years old, you are alive before every dog in the world. Shower thoughts. <laughs> Bravo. Well done, Jesse. Well, well done. done. <laughs> and now, as we, to- as we promised, a story from one of our listeners. And today we hear from Stephen Murray, who sent us this deeply personal story. Let's take a listen. My name is Stephen, and uh, I'm going to give you a little detail of how my life has taken a 180, they say. Anyhow, when I was growing up, I was always the young man that was always the last one to be picked because I was fat, and I had no abilities to really do anything in life, and everybody knew that. So when they had uh, everybody line up to be picked, uh, like on a baseball or football team, I was always the last one to be picked. And uh, the last guy that would pick me said, no, I don't want him, you take him. Now that, that's the type of life that I had for growing up through school and things of that nature. And as I started getting older, um, I got into the drinking and the drugging because that was my friend. It never gave me any issues except keep me where, where I thought I would be. And then the girls came along because you have the booze and the dope and you thought you had a hold of life. Well, through that time, uh, I knew I knew the truth because my parents always embraced that. I mean, I had a wonderful home life and everything, but I seemed to struggle. And uh, my folks always took me to Sunday school, but I i don't know. It just didn't, didn't resonate with me. But anyhow, as I grew up, the booze and the dope and 
the girls always seemed to hang and be part of my life. And I went to school, but I never really learned anything. So to say that would Im- impact me and allow me to prosper in life. And with that, I, I continued in the booze and the dope. And as I got older, I got into more heavier drugs. And uh, my older brother, Ed, he would grow weed uh, from 800 to 1,000 plants a year. And he had a really wild lifestyle. Well, one day I went over and picked up a, a bag of dope, cocaine, and I was driving home. And I saw my brother in a distance standing with a man who I knew knew Jesus, not religion. He had a relationship with Christ. And as I was going, I pulled over the side of the road, a little town and rescue there where he lived. And sure enough, he was sharing Jesus with my brother because we used to party together. And as I was listening, my inner man, my spirit, my soul was listening to what this man had to say. My flesh was telling me, let's go to the house because I had the dope. But my inner man was tuning in, and he was hearing the truth. So I embraced my brother and left. And as I got to my home about four or five miles away, as I was pulling into the driveway, I I had that truck, uh, four-wheel drive Bonanza, that had the large gas gauge and the large speedometer. Maybe the older folks would know what I'm talking about. And as I reached down to turn off my ignition, the, the gas gauge was sitting on empty. And as I was turning off the ignition, the spirit of the living God started speaking to my inner man, my soul. He says, Stephen, that's your life. It's empty. I'm thinking, wow, how can it be empty? I have a pocket full of dope, and i got money and girls and a place to live. I'm doing good, good job. And as I'm sitting there, the evil one, the devil, whoever you want to call him, he starts rolling in the cab of that truck. He says, Stephen, you're a drunk and a druggie and a screw-up. This is your life. Accept it. And just like I'm talking to somebody, I, I heard it. And as I'm sitting there, the spirit of the living God starts speaking to my heart again. says, Stephen, if you let me into your life, I'm going to get you off empty. But you have to open up the door to your heart. The doorknob's on the inside. I thought, wow, this is this is real. So I got out of my truck, and I went straight into the restroom at my house, the bathroom, and I took the bag of cocaine out, and I flushed it. I knew right then if I didn't make that decision, I would not like the outcome because I knew without a doubt this was the truth. And I got into my refrigerator and started pouring out all the booze and all the beer, got into my cabinets and started pouring everything out that had a hold of me. The pornography went out. Everything went out the back door. Took the foil off the windows because it was a flop house. I, I liked it dark in there because once you get the party and scene going, you didn't want the sunlight to come up to shut you down. So I took everything and I threw it out the back door and I got on my knees. And when I come back in there, I got on my knees and I said, Lord God, forgive me of my unrighteousness towards you. I'm asking you to take a hold of my life and do something with it. Well, that was 28 years ago. 28 years ago, I was a drunk, druggy, screw-up, didn't care about life, and didn't care what anybody else thought about it. And through that time, I uh, had a woman there that stuck with me, and I, I married her 27 years ago, and she's still with me today. But anyhow, God said he was going to get my life off empty, and he has. Today, being illiterate, 
which I'm not anymore because I started reading the Bible. And I told God, I said, God, you want me to read your word. You have to teach me to read. And I started learning how to read through the word of God. And now I'm a published author, a published songwriter, the Barnes and Nobles, Amazon.com. And, and um, I've been married, like I said, the same woman for 27 years. I didn't have to explain my past to her because she lived it with me. And she's stuck with me over all these years. And today, people don't laugh at what God's doing in my life because they've seen a drastic change. I'm not going to say my gas gauge is on full, but it's not sitting on empty anymore. And what a great story. Thank you, Stephen, for that. It doesn't get more personal or more beautiful than that. And we want to hear your stories, too. 844-627-8255. About anything that matters to you. Funny, serious, in between. 844-627-8255. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and Jesse always sets a mood. And by the way, I was just listening to Ben Webster and Art Tatum for this entire afternoon at my home. I was just (laughs) taking it easy and trying to get into a nice, relaxed state before I write a column. And that brings us to Steve Goldberg's Daydream segment. And there's not enough time in our busy life for daydreams or for naps. And I think both of them are just precious. And you've heard that right, by the way. We're diving deep into a guy's daydreams. And not just any guy, but one of our favorite guys. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College. And by the way, Steve's that kind of guy who no matter what he would have taught, it wouldn't have mattered. You would have taken him and he would have made it interesting. And by the way, there are those teachers who no matter how interesting the subject would have somehow managed to make it boring. And by the way, Steve happened to be the and happens to still be the foremost expert on patriarchy and a guy who, well, he daydreams a lot. And before we bring you this daydream this week, Steve asked that we read this disclosure, and this is a quote. The following are real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, popping into my head unexpectedly. And that's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. And here's Steve Goldberg's latest talentless daydream. A baby is somehow crawled to the outer ledge of a third floor window. The crowd below beseeches the baby to stop short of the edge, but to no avail. Hasta la vista, baby. The baby uh, puts one hand over the edge and then falls to his seeming doom. I break into a dash, running as fast as I can. 
I leap the final two feet to where I figure the baby will land. Uh, catch the baby and come down on my back. I'm somewhat bruised, but the baby is safe. A reporter asked, what did it feel like when you uh, caught the baby? Well, when I was a little kid, I, like a, a billion other little kids, dreamed of being the guy who finally filled that left the opposition my Brooklyn Dodgers could never fill successfully. We had never won a World Series, losing to the Yankees year after year, and it was World Series time once again. The final game of the 1952 World Series. It's the bottom of the ninth and the, the seventh game of the Wolf Series. We're winning one nothing, and the Yankees are up with two outs and the runner on first. Well, let's see what Mantle can do now. Mickey Mantle is at bat. If he hits a homer, the Yankees win and we're losers still once again. If we somehow manage to get Mantle out, Mantle, who seems to hit a home run every time he comes to bat, then we win. But no one's betting on this. The pitch comes in. That one's going high and deep into right field. Mantle hits this tremendous shot just inside the right field line. I break into a dash, running as fast as I can, past Snyder in center, past Verillo in right, to just inside the right field line. At the wall, he leaps! Crash into the wall and make this stupendous leaping catch. Spectacular catch! Crashing into the wall! And finally, we are the world champions. That's what it felt like. <laughs> and then we bring you now, Steve Goldberg, to talk about some of these daydreams that we've enjoyed for the past few weeks. Steve, thanks for joining us. Sure, glad to be here. Hey, what does your wife and and your friends think about these daydreams? Do you share them with them? And yes, what do they I, think? I, they seem to like them. I wasn't sure how they feel about them, though I didn't think there was anything to really dislike. But they all seem to like them and ask me to send them the next ones that come. So I'm happy about that. Um, there's, there's been no problem at all. Um, and and uh, it's sort of for a lot of people, uh, saying, uh, saying anything about their daydreams, sort of letting something out of the closet. Um, I didn't, you know, I think when I was younger, I might have felt like that. And my, my wife, who was a, um, uh, a reporter for an editor for Life magazine and Time magazine, she once was talking to a well-known, was um, uh, speaking with a well-known uh, playwright. And he said some things that, uh, and I said, she told me about it. And I said, how could he say, you know, say those things, whether it's sort of private or whatever. And she said, you know, I asked him that. And he said, when I was younger, I felt that way. He said, but now I realize everybody has those. And I realize it's not like I'm talking to people who never had daydreams. And they're going to say, oh, he has daydreams. Everybody has daydreams. So once you realize that, I suppose, fortunately, I haven't had them. But I had uh, daydreams of being a homicidal maniac. <laughs> I wouldn't, right. wouldn't say it. But yeah. since I don't think there's anything offensive about, about my daydreams, it doesn't bother me. And if they entertain people, that's great. It is great. And how frequently, Steve, do you have these daydreams? And are there... 
Are there certain rhythms and patterns in your in your life where you find them coming more frequently? Are there things you can do to create or create the mood for these daydreams to take you over? No, absolutely not. That's what's amazing. There is absolutely there's no predicting them. Now I have other daydreams that weren't worth writing down. I mean, you notice that um, the daydreams that I wrote all have a oh I don't know not to put it too grandiosely, but something of a sort of oh Henry quality. Yep. The, the the last there's a, there's a sort of punchline. I have plenty of daydreams, or not plenty, but I have occasionally daydreams that just don't have that, and I don't think they'd be of particular interest to other people. When I was a kid, like every other little kid, I dreamed about like, like I said in that thing making the catch that won the World Series. But basically, no, these daydreams just come. And after all, I had about, I guess you have about 15 of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's over 70 years. So, you know, that's, that's like well, just a little more than one every five years that's worth writing down. Um, I certainly had others, but just uh, they just weren't particularly interesting. So they don't come very often. I have no idea when they're going to come. Um, I am in a certain mood, but the mood sort of comes with the daydream. It's not like something happened in my life that put me in that mood. I right. really, I, I wish I could give you a better explanation, but I can't. No, and I think we know this, the, those of us who have dream lives, and luckily I still have one. And the, the thing that bugs me the most, Steve, is yeah. when I had a great dream and I remember little pieces of it, but not the rest. And then I try oh. to get back to sleep to get back into the dream and I can't get back in. And yeah. I, and then my wife will see me in the morning and go, what's the matter? And I go, I couldn't get back in my dream. And she's oh. like, you're crazy. What's no, the matter with you? That's the tremendous difference between daydreams and real dreams. I, I have exactly the same thing. I'll vaguely remember parts of a dream, but nowhere near enough to write it down, even let's assuming that I, I would think it would be worth writing down. With real dreams, I, 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 I can't get back to them either, and it always annoys me, but that's sort of the way it is. Daydreams you do remember because you're awake. Yep, you're awake. And, and by the way, what a wonderful life it is to be able to remember daydreams, uh, Steve, because in the end, it gets you in touch with another part of your consciousness. I mean, yeah, in the yeah. end, it just does. It certainly does. It certainly does. And if, they, if the daydreams are not frightening ones, um, it's, it's sort of encouraging. Yeah, it's so true. And if they are tantalizing and frightening, then I would assume they just become a crippling i would i would you guess know, steve awful awful then then you then you see a psychiatrist because yeah. um i mean if, if if bad daydreams are are messing up your life nice daydreams are you know it's it's better than just thinking about what you got to get at the store <laughs> um so they're pleasurable but bad daydreams fortunately i haven't had them but i feel sorry for people who do i do too and steve you know one of the running themes in, in this show it seems and this is i think the power of sports in life is that sports just plays a, a, a fundamental part in your life. It just does. We just okay. did, an, we did an hour on, not an hour, I think we did about a half hour on the life of Sandy Koufax. Oh, and, wow. and what we discovered is we had, we had contributions from Mel Brooks. I mean, it was, you name the level of talent, but Jewish men, young men living in New York at the time, just if you've got 30 seconds or a minute, what did Sandy Koufax mean to you? Oh, he was. I was a fanatic Dodger fan when I was a kid, and I had a sort of novelistic uh, time as a Dodger fan. The first year was 1951, when Bobby, the Dodgers blew 
13-and-a-half game lead and then lost in the ninth inning of the third game of a playoff when Bobby Thompson hit a bottom-of-the-ninth home run. It was a hot, it was one of the worst days of my life. And then the next year, the Dodgers lost, as usual, to the Yankees. But in 1955, at which point, I just like a lot of Dodger fans thought, we're never going to win a series. We won a series. Now, that was really about when Koufax started. So I can't say that Koufax was, was at the heart of my love of the Dodgers, because after we won the series, then I sort of went on to other things. But Koufax, and, and no doubt partly because he was Jewish, there aren't that many great Jewish athletes. That, that, that A lot of Jewish guys, Sandy Koufax meant a lot. And he also was a very admirable guy. That's true. It's so true, Steve. And thank you so much for doing what you do and joining us and sharing with us your great daydream. Steve Goldberg, Daydreams. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Would you be mine? Would you be my neighbor? This is Our American Stories, and today we pay tribute to and learn from and about perhaps the nicest and most gentle and well-mannered person to ever grace the American TV airwaves. Here's Our American Network's Jesse Edwards with a story. Hi, neighbor. I'm glad we're together again today. I've been thinking about music. <laughs> I guess you know that I really love music. It's been very, very important to me since I was very little. We can sing together. We can sing together. We can sing together. I just felt like dancing as I was sitting my seat there. I just felt like dancing, felt like dancing. We can sing together. I just felt like dancing as I was sitting my seat there. I just felt like dancing, felt like dancing. We can sing together. Fred Rogers, also known as Mr. Rogers, was born on March 20th, 1928, and passed away February 27th, 2003. He was an American television personality, puppeteer, educator, Presbyterian minister, composer, songwriter, author, and activist. 
Rogers was most famous for creating, hosting, and composing the theme music for the educational preschool television series, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, that ran from 1968 to 2001. Have you by any chance lost your kitty? The show covered a wide range of topics, such as being polite, washing your hands, being responsible, cleaning up after yourself, avoiding danger, talking to grown-ups, social etiquette, how things work, and how to deal with emotions, just to name a few. Have you by any chance lost your cat? Rogers was born in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, 40 miles southeast of Pittsburgh, to James and Nancy Rogers. He was an only child until his parents adopted a baby girl. Early in life, he spent much of his free time with his maternal grandfather, Fred McFreely, who had an interest in music. He would often sing along as his mother would play the piano. He himself began playing at the age of five. Here's Fred Rogers in 1982 talking with David Letterman on The Tonight Show about being an only child. I was an only child until my sister came when I was 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And I had to make up a lot of my own play, Mm -hmm. my own friends. And so I would dip into my bag of puppets and make them talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, King Friday the 13th, you know, speaks like this. And Lady Elaine Fairchild would be glad to be here. Did uh, did this bother mom and dad? I mean, I mean, you know. That I would speak to myself? Yeah, you were sitting in the room, maybe talking to yourself. Mm-hmm. Happily, it didn't. Rogers would go on to graduate from Latrobe High School in 1946. He studied at Dartmouth College and transferred to Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, where he earned a B.A. in music composition in 1951. Rogers was also a trained general aviation pilot. Here again is Mr. Rogers talking with late-night TV host Arsenio Hall about his early life and someone he looked up to as a role model. Yeah, when I was three, this young man was uh, just an early teenager, and his mother had died, and my mom and dad said, come live with us. And uh, he turned out to be a real model for me. As a matter of fact, when I was in high school, he taught me how to fly. And right after that, he went to teach at Tuskegee Institute in Alabama mm-hmm. and taught all of the black flyers in, in the country to fly in the uh, Second World War. Yeah. His name was George Allen, and he's going to be 80 this year, and I really admire him. Yeah. So I had a black brother even then. <laughs> In college, Mr. Rogers met Sarah Bird, and they married in 1952. They had two sons, and in 1963, Rogers graduated from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary as an ordained minister in the United Presbyterian Church. Rogers was also colorblind, swam every morning, and neither smoked nor drank. He was also a vegetarian on ethical grounds, stating, quote, I don't want to eat anything that has a mother. Fish can do things people can't do. His office at WQED in Pittsburgh famously did not have a desk, only a sofa and armchairs, because Rogers thought a desk was too much of a barrier. In 1954, he began working at WQED, a Pittsburgh public television station, as a puppeteer on a local children's show, The Children's Corner. For the next seven years, he worked with Jose Carey in unscripted live TV, developing many of the puppets, characters, and music he used later in his work. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood began airing in 1968 and ran for 895 episodes. The last set of new episodes, taped in December of 2000, began airing in August 2001. At its peak in 1985, 8% of U.S. households tuned in to the show. 
Here's the very first broadcast of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood that aired February 19, 1968. Filmed in black and white, Rogers talks about his porch swing before breaking out into a song. A grandmother friend of mine gave me this swing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I had a different one before. It was, it was kind of small, and I had it way out in the yard, so I was never able to show it to you. But this one I can. How do you feel about new things? Sure. What about growing? You like to grow, don't you? That's sort of like going up and feeling different inside. Well, however you feel about it, I like you exactly as you are. I like you as you are, exactly and precisely. I think you turned out nicely, and I like you as you are. This is Our American Stories, and when we come back, the rest of the Fred Rogers story like you've never heard it before. More after these messages. American stories, and now we continue our look into the life and the career of Fred Rogers, host of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which aired a total of 31 seasons on PBS. My neighbor, welcome again to this neighborhood. I'd like to show you something. This is a cassette player with a little cassette in here, and there's nothing written on it, so we'll just have to play it to see what it is. Do you ever imagine things? Are they scary things? Are they scary things? Do you ever imagine things? Things you'd like to have. Did you ever see a cat's eyes in the dark and wonder what they were? What they were? Did you ever pretend about things like that? Did you ever pretend about things like? Did you ever grow anything in the garden of your mind? In the garden of your mind. You can grow ideas in the garden of your mind. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood began airing in 1968 and ran for 895 episodes. The last set of new episodes, taped in December of 2000, began airing in August 2001. At its peak in 1985, 8% of U.S. households tuned in to the show. Here, Mr. Rogers talks about how writing music and being creative can give someone great insight into childhood development. He then goes on to talk about how children are unfortunately too often appreciated for what they will be, not for what they already are. When you write music and have a feeling for children, even before you've studied child development, uh, there's something of the creative artist that comes through anyway. You know, like, I like you as you are, for instance. 
this has turned out, and I collaborated on that song, and it's turned out to be one of the most important ones, I think, that we've written. You know, I like you as you are, exactly and precisely. I think you turned out nicely, and I like you as you are. And children need to hear that. I don't think that anybody can grow unless he really is accepted exactly as he is. Because if somebody's always saying to a child, uh, you're going to grow up and you're going to be fine. So much of that in this country anyway, you know, that, the, that a child is appreciated for what he will be, not for what he is. He will be a great consumer someday. And so the quicker we can get them to grow up, and the quicker we can get them out of the nest so that they will go out and buy, you know, set up their own home at 12, maybe, then the better. One of the things that Fred Rogers was well known for was his unique ability to get children to communicate openly with him about topics that even a lot of adults have trouble with. Here, Rogers talks about how he got a classroom full of children to open up with him because they knew he was in tune. One little boy by the name of Thatcher spoke first. And all he said was, my doggie's ear came off in the automatic washer. And there was silence, just complete silence. It was as if, this is your test, Mr. Rogers. Are you still in touch with childhood? And so I said, sometimes that happens to toys, doesn't it? their ears come off or their legs come off, but that never happens to us. Our ears don't come off, our noses don't come off, our arms don't come off, and Thatcher's eyes were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and he said, and our legs don't come off? And I said, no, they don't. And I didn't have to go any further, you see. I didn't have to say, our penises don't come off. I didn't have to say this because the children knew that I was in tune. And immediately, all of the other children started asking questions and poignant questions, questions about death. Talking, One child talked about her cat dying. And it was just as if, you know, we shall now open the door. You have passed the test. You may come in and we will communicate with you. But if I had said, I'm convinced of this. If I had said, uh, if, to, to reply to Thatcher's question, what happened, Thatcher? Did your mother sew the ear on again? Then I know they would have very politely sat there and said nothing more. In February of 1981 on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Rogers is visited by Jeff Erlinger, a young boy in an electric wheelchair who talks openly about his physical condition and how his chair works. It's a very fancy machine, but, you, but you're the one who makes it go. Right. Did it take a long time to learn how? No, not really. I dug the wheelchair, but that only took... My first electric wheelchair only took me about a day to learn how to use it. Gee, that's wonderful. Jeff, you, your mom and dad must be really proud of you. I'm sure they are. Yeah. Well, I know I am. Now, uh, can you tell my friends 
what it is that made you need this wheelchair. Sure. Well, when I was about seven months old, I had um, I had a tumor, and it broke the nerves to tell my hands and legs what to do. I see. And they tried to cut the tumor, but they did, couldn't get it, and I became handicapped. And I got a wheelchair when I was four years old. That was your first one? Mm-hmm. When you were four? Uh-huh. Do you remember that? Yeah, sort of. Only Mr. Rogers would do what you're about to hear next. Looking into this young boy's eyes, he starts to sing him a song, and then they sing together. Do you know that song that I sometimes sing called It's You I Like? Uh-huh. I'd like to sing that to you and with you. Okay, okay, sure. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you I like. The way you are right now, the way down deep inside you. Eighteen years later, that same young man surprised and thanked Mr. Rogers in his induction to the TV Critics Television Hall of Fame in 1999. It's, a, it's an honor to be here tonight, to be part of your proud moment, this proud moment. You know, when, when you tell people that it's you I, it's you I like, you know that you really mean it. And tonight, I want to let you know that on behalf of millions of children and grown-ups, it is you that I like. Right after that surprise reunion at Mr. Rogers' induction to the TV Critics Television Hall of Fame, Mr. Rogers thanks Jeff Erlinger and goes on to describe fame as a four-letter word. Fame is a four-letter word. And like tape, or zoom, or face, or pain, or life, or love, what ultimately matters is what we do with it. I feel that those of us in television are chosen to be servants. It doesn't matter what our particular job. We are chosen to help meet the deeper needs of those who watch and listen, day and night. The conductor of the orchestra at the Hollywood Bowl grew up in a family that had little interest in music, but he often tells people he found his early inspiration from the fine musicians on television. Rogers wasn't done with this speech. Standing before an audience of famous movie and television actors and producers, Fred Rogers went on to talk about the responsibility that people in TV have to make goodness attractive. Last month, a 13-year-old boy abducted an 8-year-old girl. And when people ask him why, he said he learned about it on TV. Something different to try, he said. Life's cheap. What does it matter? Well, life isn't cheap. It's the greatest mystery of any millennium. And television needs to do all it can to broadcast that to show and tell what the good in life is all about. But how do we make goodness attractive? 
by doing whatever we can to bring courage to those whose lives move near our own, by treating our neighbor at least as well as we treat ourselves, and allowing that to inform everything that we produce. This is Our American Stories, and when we come back, more of our special profile on the life of Mr. Rogers, a man whose sole purpose for being on TV was to teach children how to respect themselves and how to respect others. our American stories and we now conclude our look into the life and career of a man who single-handedly changed the lives of millions of children across America with a message of compassion curiosity and self-control here is the rest of the story in 1969 Fred Rogers appeared before the United States Senate subcommittee on communications His goal was to support funding for PBS and a corporation for public broadcasting in response to significant proposed cuts. In about six minutes of testimony, Rogers spoke of the need for social and emotional education that public television provided. He passionately argued that alternative television programming like his Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood helped encourage children to become happy and productive citizens, sometimes opposing less positive messages in media and popular culture. He even recited the lyrics to one of his own songs. Here's Mr. Rogers talking about the moments that led up to his testimony before Congress and how he made a last-minute change to his delivery that probably made all the difference in the world. I remember when I was in my 30s and I was invited to come here and testify before Senator Pastore and his committee requesting government support for the fledgling educational television stations. John Pastore. I was By the time it came for me to speak, it was late in the day, and I could tell that the whole committee, including Senator Pastore, had already heard enough from those who had testified before me. So even though I had a prepared statement, I set it aside and told our story as quickly as I could. The chairman of that subcommittee, John Pastore, was not previously familiar with Rogers' work and was sometimes described as impatient. Here's Mr. Rogers' testimony before the United States Senate Subcommittee on Communications. Listen to the response from Senator Pastore. Make it clear that feelings are mentionable and manageable. We will have done a great service for mental health. Uh, I think that it's much more dramatic that two men could be working out their feelings of anger, much more dramatic than showing something of gunfire. I'm constantly concerned about what our children are seeing. 
and for 15 years I have tried in this country and Canada to present what I feel is a meaningful expression of care. Do you narrate it? I'm the host, yes. And I do all the puppets, and I write all the music, and I write all the scripts. Well, I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy, and this is the first time I've had goosebumps for the last two days. <laughs> well, I'm grateful, not only for your goosebumps, but for your interest in, in our kind of communication. Could I tell you the words of one of the songs which I feel is very important? Yes. This has to do with that good feeling of control, which I feel that the children need to know is there. And it starts out, what do you do with the mad that you feel? And that first line came straight from a child. I work with children do doing puppets in, in very personal communication with small groups. What do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad, you could bite when the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right. What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag or see how fast you go? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead and think this song. I can stop when I want to, can stop when I wish, can stop, 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 any time. And what a good feeling to feel like this. And know that the feeling is really mine. Know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can. For a girl can be someday a lady, and a boy can be someday a man. I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. Looks like you just earned the twenty million dollars. <laughs> After Mr. Rogers' testimony, the subsequent congressional appropriation for 1971 increased PBS funding from nine million to twenty-two million dollars. Mr. Rogers was known for often talking about somewhat complex topics with the children on his show and the children watching at home in a very simple yet non-condescending way. Topics like dealing with emotions, disabilities, and even death. When I was very young, I had a dog that I loved very much. Her name was Mitzi. Mm -hmm. And she got to be old, and she died. And I was very sad when she died because she and I were good pals. Mm -hmm. And when she died, I cried. And my grandmother heard me crying, I remember. And she came and she just put her arm around me because she knew I was sad. She knew how much I loved that dog. And my dad said we'd, we'd have to bury Mitzi. And uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to bury her because I thought I'd just pretend that she was still alive. But my dad said that her body was dead. 
and we'd have to bury her. So we did. Even now, I can still remember Mitzi's prickly fur and her uh, curly tail. She had a tail that went around like that. Mm -hmm. Would you like to see a picture of her? I think I have one in the drawer here. I really missed her when she died. Sometimes people get sad and they really do feel bad. But the very same people who are sad sometimes are the very same people who are glad sometimes. It's funny, but it's true. It's the same, isn't it for me? Isn't it the same? For you. And there you have it, folks. The life of Fred Rogers. A man who took it upon himself to change what was being shown to our children on TV on a daily basis. A man who showed us adults how to build better communication skills with our own children. A man that refused to be anyone else other than himself while showing others how to do the same. This is Our American Stories. To hear this special on the life of Fred Rogers again, or share it with friends, visit us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for a segment that we focus on as often as we can in October, because it's important. It's Infant Loss Month. It was declared in 1988 by President Reagan, and it honors those babies lost in miscarriages, stillborn births, or sudden infant death syndrome. 
And these are things that happen to so many people that we thought we should share the voices of the people who've grieved and let you hear them and then let you share your voices with us and your stories. And the first story we're going to bring to you tonight comes from Emily Carrington. And she shared her story at thefederalist.com and kindly recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. Having lost three children to miscarriage, one of my biggest fears is that my children will be forgotten. I'm not looking for me or my miscarriages to be remembered. I'm looking for my children to be remembered. In many ways, this is really an impossible request. No one has ever met my children, and other than an indecipherable eight-week ultrasound of our first, I don't even have pictures to share. But their souls grace this earth, if only for a short time. And as their mother, I yearn for others to carry my children in their hearts. I do know other people miss our children. My husband and I are not the only ones with empty arms. Their grandparents, aunts, and uncles are missing baby snuggles. Their cousins are missing playmates. And their church is missing baptisms. But as their mother, I carry the weight of their memory every day. And ultimately, I fear they will be forgotten. I am blessed beyond measure when my children are remembered. Following my third miscarriage, we were blessed by an outpouring of love and support from friends and family. One day, I answered the door to find a good friend holding five flowers. As she handed them to me, she simply said, A flower for each member of your family. As heartbroken as I was following that loss, my heart was full. My children had been remembered. Every parent who has lost a child carries the memory of his or her child. And many fear their children will be forgotten. But unfortunately, not every lost parent has a way to remember his or her child. Due to the silence surrounding pregnancy and infant loss, too many parents are burdened and alone, with no space to channel their own grief, let alone encourage others to remember. As my husband and I shared our losses publicly, we've also been able to give life to our children. We refer to them by their nicknames when talking to friends. We reminisce about my pregnancies. And we honor special days. Often this is accompanied by tears. But it is also often accompanied by great joy as we have had the pleasure of celebrating and remembering our children. But our story is not the norm. Our culture has a deep need for a space for parents to grieve their children. Countless articles and blog posts have been written over the last few years, crying out for the freedom to talk about our children. The subject has been covered over and over again because the silence has been imprisoning families for too long. Inspired by the upcoming film project on the subject, Don't Talk About the Baby, I second them and say, It's time to talk about the baby. Although slowly... This need is being addressed, 
and perhaps this outcry is evidence of more than 30 years of work. In 1988, President Reagan recognized the tragedy of pregnancy and infant loss as he declared October National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. Reagan is often attributed with saying, when a child loses his parent, they are called an orphan. When a spouse loses her or his partner, they are called a widow or a widower. When parents lose their child, there isn't a word to describe them. That's so true, and thanks for recording that, Emily. And wanted to share a little extra part of the piece that Emily wrote for the Federalist called Please Help Me Remember the Children I Have Lost to Miscarriage. She added this, Our lack of awareness about miscarriage is pervasive. Dr. Zev Williams conducted a study where 55% of respondents believe miscarriage occurs in less than 5% of pregnancies while the number is actually between 15 and 20%. Adding to the misunderstanding, most people do not know what causes a miscarriage. As many as 76% believed one could be caused by a stressful event. And then, because of this misconception, blame themselves for it. So thank you for writing what you wrote, Emily, and thank you for recording it. And now... On to a second story. This one comes from the Today Show, of all places. And it's about about a very unique ministry of photographers. Can you hold your brother's hand like this? The birth of a baby. Happy smiles, one, two, three, go. Jessica Person photographs that joy hundreds of times a year. Oh, that's perfect. Every picture important, but some more meaningful than others. And then one, two, three, wow. Wow. We know we're having a girl, and we've named her Olivia. Eileen and Paul Lundberg. Awesome. And their blended family wanted tangible memories. Oh, I like that so much better. Even before Olivia was born. Captured moments of happiness. Can you get the shot, a shot where I'm kissing your tummy? Absolutely. More important because genetic tests revealed baby Olivia likely would not survive her birth. We have a a beautiful little girl, and we're trying to make the best of it that we can. She will not grow up, we know that. And so we're uh, enjoying every minute and every day that we have uh, Olivia. Can I look down at Olivia for me? In years past, when parents were told their baby might die, doctors encouraged moms and dads not to bond with the baby. We know from looking back, when we haven't allowed families to recognize their children, that they have a harder time grieving them, because people expect them to move on. And this allows people to say, no, I had a baby, this is my baby, and he's beautiful. Jessica knows that because five years ago, she went through the same thing. Without those pictures, memories fade. Her son was Eli. I was never more proud of anything I'd done in my life than the day I gave birth to Eli. And so taking a picture was natural? Absolutely. Even though I think most of us would think it's the saddest day? Absolutely. Our minds blur things. And so those pictures you have of Eli, Mm -hmm. they mean? They mean he was here. They're proof. They're proof of what he looked like. They're proof that he looked like his daddy when he was born. They are a testament to his life and what his life meant to us. That he existed? That he existed. Four pounds, 3.2 ounces. Jessica and a team of photographers across the country are part of a network of volunteers who, in their own way, 
help parents like the Lundbergs celebrate lives all too short. Oh, Olivia. I love you, sweetheart. You say hi to my Eli in heaven for me, okay? And tell him his mommy loves him. Thank you, Jessica. Eileen and Paul, like any parents, now have pictures of their child. Olivia was here only briefly. But her life was no less important. That was our life with Olivia, was that day. And um, to have those captured on film by somebody that really knew what they were doing. I mean, to have that is just priceless. This is at once one of the saddest stories I've ever covered and also the most inspirational, really. The organization is called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. We've put up a link on our website to the more than 3,200 photographers. They've taken thousands of pictures just this year. And again, that's nowilaymedowntosleep.org. And what a ministry that is, folks. And what a way to use your talents and gifts from God uh, with a camera to ease people's suffering during their greatest time of grief, but also their time of joy. And Eileen and Paul, thank you for opening yourselves up to a show as big as the Today Show, where a lot of people might just be saying, oh, how weird, how kooky, come on. I mean, that's how people used to think about these things. And hopefully that perception can get changed with a ministry like this. And baby Olivia, you were loved. You were loved. And we all get a, a ticket here on earth. We don't know how long it'll be. But to be loved, my goodness, what more can you ask for? Eileen and Paul loved her. They loved God. God loved them back. And God loves us all. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories. Mm-hmm.